Please stand for the reading of God's word. This will be from Nehemiah 7, 4 through 7a, verse 66, and verses 70 through 73, and chapter 8. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had, call, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nehem, and Bana. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Now, some of those heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury the work of 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And they read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, into the presence of the men and women of those who could understand. And the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Amaziah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milchalah, Hashem, Hashbadah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maziah, Kaliah, Azariah, Hozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and set portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed and all, all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses, had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them to, to made booth, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, 
and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all assembly of those who had returned from, the, from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God. They kept the, the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Gabe. Uh, I promise that was not a punishment on Gabe. Uh, and actually, we skipped vast parts of chapter 7 that would have been truly punishing. Uh, so thank you, Gabe, for reading for us uh, this morning. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah that we have been calling A Time to Rebuild. Uh, Nehemiah itself is a book, as we've just sort of pivoted out of, about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem a city that had been broken down some 140 years earlier as part of the exile that God allowed his people to go out into as a consequence uh, for their walking away from him time and time again. This was part of his plan to eventually bring them back to him. But the process of that was a severe mercy, a difficult consequence. And through that, the people were taken away, the walls were broken down, and now some 140 years later, the walls are still in disrepair, and the people have begun to have a heart through Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild these things, to rebuild themselves. And so we've been talking about how that's not just a time of rebuilding that happened long ago, but really this is a time uh, that's fitting for us to rebuild as people. Just a lot of things have been happening in our world over the past few years, even decades really, that are difficult. And not only that, our church has gone through a time of transition of our former uh, senior pastor moving on, of no longer being a network of churches and now just being our one particular church. So it's a time for us as CTK to also rebuild, to, to rediscover what it is that God's calling us here uh, to do. And so I hope that we are learning, that we will continue to learn through the rest of our series, how we, both as individuals and as a community, can rebuild, that we, like the city of Jerusalem was meant to be, might be a refuge where people can come and know the real God, to know Him personally in a way that causes and leads to flourishing Last time, uh, if you were here with us, chapter 6, we looked at Nehemiah facing uh, extreme external challenges, threats against his life and the lives of the people. And we saw how that revealed that God meets us in our challenges and actually gives us a confidence that lets us choose for ourselves how we respond, that we don't just have to be a clanging symbol, that we can, we can think thoughtfully, what is God calling us to in this response, that we can let some things go even as we rebuild. Uh, but today our text hits a turning point. From chapter 7 on, we are going to sort of leave the walls behind us in many ways and start seeing how God is going to move from the outside in. He's been rebuilding the city walls, and as we talked about, without walls, a city in that time was completely vulnerable. There was no such thing as security or predictability, and so the rebuilding of the walls is the first time that the people are now having an opportunity to rebuild themselves, to have their own hearts rebuilt. The conditions have actually been set for the first time in 140 years for the people to start rebuilding internally as a group. And that's what we're going to focus on in these closing chapters of the book. And today, in particular, we're going to pivot to what it looks like to see the people begin to be rebuilt. Uh, We're going to look at, uh, really, I should look at a lot of things, but we're going to focus this week um, on how rebuilding the people shows us a few different things of what rebuilding for individuals and communities looks like. What are some of the components of that? We're going to have to pick up on some of these themes more next week, but we'll start to look at how, how rebuilding looks like being connected to each other and to God, how it looks like being invested and how it looks like discovering God's joy. So we're going to look at how rebuilding personally involves being connected to each other. We're going to see that through the census of chapter 7. We're going to look at how it involves being invested. We're going to see that through verses 70 and 73 of chapter 7. 
Then we're going to look at how it involves discovering God's joy in chapter 8. So those three things. Before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me and ask God to fill up our hearts this morning as we dive into his word. God, what a powerful thing it is on a morning like this to get to stand and hear how centuries ago, thousands of years ago, someone opened the book, the scroll of your word, and the people stood to hear it read. As we did that this morning, we are rehearsing what your people did thousands of years ago and have done for thousands of years, that that we stand now in the wake of their faithfulness. We stand in the wake of your faithfulness to your people, that you are faithful through generations. Help us to sense that echo down through the ages and across the world, God, that you are faithful to your people, that you gather your people back, that you still speak your word, that your word still has power to change and restore and heal, to convict and uplift. Would it be all those things and so much more this morning in our hearts? Would these not just be bare words, but would this be a full, vibrant, living text that as your living and active word breathes new life into us, that we... And all the ways that we are dead might be raised up to new life. Would you do that this morning by your grace that we are confident is still with us? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we saw at just the beginning of this chapter, if you look back at uh, 7 verses 4, it gives sort of this transition. It says, the city was wide and large. Last week we closed with actually putting the gates in the city walls, but Nehemiah points out something for us, that despite the fact that the city is wide and large, ready for lots of people to come in, lots of people are not there yet. That there are still these external threats that we talked about didn't go away. It would be natural at that time to be feeling threatened, to be feeling outnumbered. Yes, you have the walls back up. Yes, you have the gates back up. But it would be very easy as the people have gone back out to their towns from rebuilding to feel alone, to feel scattered, to feel small. And so God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to start doing something to give them courage to give them strength for rebuilding. Now, we skipped over the extended list of family names in chapter 7, but I'm going to reference them in a few ways here so you can look back. If you have your Bibles, have those open, or we should have one in the pew in front of you. Uh, The passage starts with God putting it on Nehemiah's heart to take what is a census, a, a recording of the people of God that lived there at that time, that have participated in the rebuilding effort. And he puts it on his heart to do that in a particular way. I don't know if you noticed this, but he says to do it by genealogy. That means by families. So this wasn't simply a, a numerical head count. This was a genealogical headcount, a, a, a headcount that related to relationships, connections. This is actually something God has done throughout the history of his people. If you look back at the book of Numbers, it will help us understand a little better what's going on here. At that time in the book of Numbers, the people had just come out from brutal oppression and slavery and genocide, from being not even second-class citizens, not even being treated like people, being treated like property in Egypt. God has just brought them out from that. He has reconstituted them as his special people, and now he is going to be sending them out to be this light to the world of what that redeeming God looks like, what it looks like to have God in your corner when you are down and out and in need of a friend. That's their new mission that he's constituting them for. And on the eve of doing that, in Numbers, Moses takes a census of the people, and he does that by families, by genealogy, not just by their location, not just by how many totals there were, but totals by families. It was accounting by relationships, showing their connections to one another and to one another back through time, back to the very promises of God at the earliest stages of Scripture to Abraham that he would take this one man and him as good as dead, as Hebrews says, and from him that he would bring descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And we see this counting in numbers of God keeping his promises to families, that families and communities are those that God is caring about and growing. And by extension, that counting together as people is a very testimony to God's faithfulness and investment in them. 
That by seeing themselves in this array, in these patterns, in these families, they are tracing themselves back to those promises of God to be their God and the God of their children. God lays claim not just on individuals. God lays claim on families, on people, through time, through brokenness. This Israel is a broken family. Israel is the name that God gives Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver. Jacob was not a great person. Even the brokenness before Jacob shows that God lays claim to broken families, to families in pain, to families that are not what they once were, to families that have gone through hard things. These kind of census moments show us God faithful to broken families over time. Is that where your family is today? Really, I should say, what brokenness is in your family today? See the faithfulness of God over time. See God showing us connection to one another over time as he does here. This counting that would have been done in numbers that's done here is a tangible numerical expression of God making good on his past promises not to go away on you. Not to give up on you and your family just because things don't look good. This is a reminder, this counting of what God has done before and how he did it through and for his people to bring them back to this moment. And we see the same exact thing happening here with Nehemiah after exile. Having rebuilt the walls, the people are named and counted by genealogy, by relationships again. In the midst of feeling isolated and lonely and outnumbered, God counts his people in relationships again to show them their connection to one another, to show them their connection back to his promises. Because the list starts, if we look at chapter 7, verse 7 and following, it says, if I can find it for myself, The number of the men of the people of Israel, verse 8, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sounds of Shephthiah, 372. And the list goes on and on. He's naming them in groups that are connected. As they rebuild externally, he is showing them that he is still rebuilding them internally. That they are still connected to these same promises. That families still matter to him. They would have been reminded through this being counted, seeing others being counted for this, of how God had counted them before. And through that, how he had rebuilt them after slavery into a people with a new existence, a regained purpose, a a regained community, and that they could see that through his counting them, he is actually rebuilding them again. That it doesn't matter if it's the exodus or the exile, God is going to rebuild his people. It doesn't matter if it's this kind of sin or that kind of sin, God is going to rebuild his people. It doesn't matter if you are messed up in this way or that way. If you are broken with this kind of brokenness, if you've had that kind of past, God is going to rebuild his people. It doesn't matter where the brokenness is. It doesn't matter how long it's been there. See through this counting the faithfulness of God amidst brokenness. And see that a key component to his rebuilding us is actually our seeing one another. Our being connected to the people of God. To recognizing that we are not alone. We need to see God showing us today as people living here in the greater Cambridge, Boston area, that we are part of a whole family of faith. That we have been reconstituted apart from bloodlines and family lines into the family line of God. Part of something larger than just me. Something larger even than just my family. Something larger even than just this community. We are part of the people of God. Not isolated, not alone. You might feel that way at school. Maybe you are the only Christian in your class. 
You might feel that way at work or in your community or amongst your peers and your neighbors. You might be the only Christian in your community. Be reminded through this text, be reminded through this small census this morning that you are sitting in that you are not alone. That the Christian life you are living is not one that you are living alone, but you are living inside community. We need that for our rebuilding. We are not going to make it if we are just trying to lone wolf it out there day in and day out. God has never meant for us to live siloed, isolated Christian lives, but there is something to the vibrancy of a Christian community with a heartbeat that is God's heartbeat pumping life into all of its members that as we go out, we might take that life with us, and as we come back, we are gathered back into it. There is a rhythm and importance to being here each week as best we can that we would be regathered up into this story, regathered up into this community, that as we go out, we might not be going alone. That we would know in this sort of counting each week that that we are part of the work of God, part of the faithfulness of God. This is what we need to see. And not just here either, not even just within these walls, because it's true for us as CTK that we are also connected outside of these walls to other brothers and sisters in Christ that are also still laboring faithfully, leaning in to Christ, leaning into his mission here, carrying on the work. We can think of the Brazilian congregations that went out from CTK not long ago, like CTK United Boston, Quincy, Fall River. We can think about our English-speaking congregations that planted and went out over the years, Dorchester, Newton, Somerville, South Shore, Parkway Prez. We can think about the City Life congregations that are sisters in our denomination across the water that are also laboring to rebuild at this time. We can think about other churches that we're connected to even here in Cambridge, Pentecostal, Pentecostal Tabernacle, giving to us in our rebuilding through their generosity, inviting us into prayer, praying for us. Christians, we are not alone. Even in CTK, we are not alone. We are part of the community of God, and it is good as we rebuild to be reminded of that. So I want to invite you to look for connections with brothers and sisters here and brothers and sisters who are not here, who are part of other churches, to think about ways to keep Christian community on our minds, to keep the encouragement of that, the reality, the presence of that on our minds that we might not grow cold and fearful in our own hearts. We need to be reminded that God is still at work here in our time and place and that we are not alone in these things. But the text also invites us to see not just how we are connected to one another for rebuilding, but how rebuilding also involves being a connected community that is invested in something greater than itself. That turns us to our second point, being invested. If you turn your eyes to 7 verses 70 through 73, the text talks about the community being financially invested in the work of the city's life in the work of rebuilding, perhaps by extension covering some of the costs of what's already come, but certainly, and by some of the mention of things like priest's garments, they are funding the work that was to come, funding a city coming back to life in many ways. 770 says, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. And it also talks about the houses as groups and the rest of the people as sort of a whole group of people. The picture is a community giving. Not just one or two people, not just particularly motivated, particularly sensitive individuals, but that the overall sense is that the whole community is leaning into this work. Some obviously do that more than others. Some are, more, are better off than others. Uh, some don't seem to give at all, but the overall impression is that the community is giving here. The community of God is investing in the work and the vision of God that is coming to life in this place through the rebuilding of these walls. And we've already seen how that's actually happened in tangible ways through the rebuilding of the physical walls a few chapters earlier where, where families got involved. It talked about daughters getting involved to put in work on rebuilding the walls. It talked about brothers being involved. It talked about people rebuilding as family groups, working side by side to rebuild for God. Now we see them 
developing those muscles in new ways, still working side by side. The habits that they have picked up, they are continuing to use. They are giving side by side to see this place that they have rebuilt materially come to life again in a new way. They're giving gold, silver, garments, ceremonial basins, things that would enable the return of worship and community life to this place. The point was not the walls. The walls were a means to an end, and we see the people's giving driving to that reality, that there is something beyond just simply accomplishing a project, simply putting up a new shiny front to a church perhaps, right? (laughs) There is something beyond that that was actually important. They are giving to see this place come to life. They don't want to build a city wall that's a wall around nothing. It can be really easy to do that. It'd be easy to get on board with this project that looks flashy and visually appealing and I can see that I did something, but ultimately it is hollow and empty. No, they wanted to not build a wall around nothing like some sort of empty shell. They wanted to build a wall that was like like a biological cell, having a wall around something that is alive. They're breathing life into the city by giving financially, knowing that the work and the worship of God, this other-centered life of the people of God, requires tangible support, that we are physical embodied creatures and we need physical embodied things to live, to worship, to share, to support. Christianity is not just a faith of the Spirit. It is a whole person faith. It is a whole person theology, and we see people giving in response to that kind of understanding, and that helps us see that, yes, we deeply need the encouragement of seeing one another, being this connected body, but we also need to see that body coming to life. We need to see one another being at work, giving generously to be vibrant, to shine, to be doing something more than just gathering, but to be going out, to be recreating, to be, to be renewed in front of one another. We need to see these things happening and give to make these things possible. If all our time of rebuilding looks like as a church is that we have, we have put together some new systems and programs... We've got them fully staffed up, we've got a good rotation of people, and we've reset our vision on something, but we have not materially given to support the work that we intend to do, then we have just built a shell that has no ability to go forward, that has no vibrancy behind it, that has no hands and feet that are going to go out from it. Rebuilding involves the material investment of the people of God in the things of God. Rebuilding to vitality, to a cell, not a shell, requires us to together, as a community, give generously and sacrificially to see that work come alive. It doesn't say just you by yourself. Give everything you have, be spent, and then come right back to the diaconate because you need help. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that we as a group, as a people together, even with small gifts, can make dramatic differences. It doesn't say how many people gave to give those 20,000 derricks of gold, which was a lot of money, but the people did that. It may feel like, yeah, my small gift is not going to make much of a difference, but it can cumulatively have great impact here together. And more than that, Scripture tells us that what God delights in is the heart of a cheerful giver. Jesus commented once that a woman was putting the smallest possible offering that she could in the offering box, that she was so destitute and poor that it says she put in all she had to live on and it wasn't anything. It was a breath. And Jesus said that she gave more than everyone else. It is not the size of the gift, but it is a community giving together. And that makes me wonder. I hope it makes us wonder. What could we do together? What would it be like if all of us, according to our abilities, gave in that historic tithe that we worked towards 10% of all that God has given us that we would give back towards his work and his mission? 
What would our legacy of faith look like in this place? Not enriching ourselves, but enriching the community around us, having a greater impact, having a greater footprint, having a greater care and and a presence that if we were gone, people would notice that. What's our vision for giving here? If we have no vision, ultimately, we will hit that, which is no vision. (laughs) Nothing will happen. But if we have some vision, then we can drive towards these things. And it's hard. I'm not saying it isn't hard. It's not hard for for me. But we often think about giving in terms of what am I being asked to give up? Makes me think about me as an isolated individual, me outside the walls of Jerusalem, off by myself, not counted as part of a community. The question of what am I asked to give up, which is still real and valid, can be an isolating, lonely question. But if we think about giving as an investment, a community investment, it invites me to think, what could we do through this? Not just what am I giving up, but what could be done through this? Where would this investment go? What am I going to hear about when I get to the other side and I am in glory and everyone is there with me? What am I going to hear about? How many people am I going to hear about that their lives were changed because of what we gave to? That there are people in heaven with us in glory that would not be there otherwise. People that taste the redemption of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ that would not be there if we had not given the ways that we had given. I'm not saying this isn't hard. And I'm not saying it's not going to be a struggle. But I am saying that we are invited into this struggle together for a benefit of a people that is not even in these walls. I'm saying we give for the people who aren't sitting, for these empty pews. That's what we are giving towards and for. That's what the people were giving towards was for an empty city. It says the city was wide and large and there were not many people in it yet. The gifts were for the reanimating, for the vitality of that place that it might again be a living, breathing space where you could personally know the God of the universe again. I want to invite us to think about these things as well because so far we have seen that the people's connections matter for encouragement and the support and investment of the community matters for the rebuilding of community life. But if that's where we stop, then it's still going to feel like this is a a works-based religion. That yeah, these things are beautiful and yeah, I want to accomplish these things, but it's still me, me, me. Me having to give, me having to do it, my strength, my ability. That's not where the text stops. Praise God for that. That's not where I'm stopping this morning either. We're moving on because the the text shows us in chapter 8, the true depth of the beginnings of rebuilding comes from discovering God's joy. So to turn to our final point here, if you look at chapter 8, it says the people gathered with a shared purpose. Verse says as one man, that's what that means, with a shared purpose, which was to hear from the word of God what seems to be the the Pentateuch, most likely, the first five books of the Old Testament. They gathered to hear the word of God as a regathered people inside the newly built walls of the city. They're coming to hear from him and worship him for the first time as a people group in decades. It has not been possible to worship safely as the gathered people of God in decades decades, over a century. I remember the first time that I came back to church after COVID in Philly, we were virtual for a year. I think y'all were some similarly long time virtual here. And I sat in church for the first time in a year after all that had gone by, after all the pain that we had gone through uh, as a world, as a country. And it was powerful to be back after you couldn't be together to be together again. Imagine that feeling, but based on 140 years of absence, where your parents hadn't gone to church, your family hadn't gone to church, not because they didn't want to, but because they couldn't. Imagine being back for the first time, and it's no wonder that they spent six or seven hours together at this first church service. Y'all might feel like we have a long service sometimes, right? Just go back to chapter 8, be like, thank God it's not a six-hour service, and I'm not standing for all six hours. Uh, Praise God for pews, right? Um, 
But they spend a long time together. You could see why. It's the first time in a long time that they have been together, even from early morning until noon when it's probably getting too hot to be together at that time still. And verses 4 through 12 of chapter 8 zoom in on what that experience is like. It says that they read for that time, and that's going to talk to us about what that time looks like, sort of summary and then expansion. It starts with Ezra opening the book, or really what was a scroll that would have been unrolled. And these were big scrolls, which is probably why there are several people with him to hold ends of the scroll so he can go to parts of the Torah, parts of the Pentateuch, and see where he's going to read from selections where God's putting it on his heart to read. And he opens the scroll and he gives a customary praise to God before reading, thanking God for speaking, for not letting it be silence, but for filling up the space, filling up the void with who he is. Ezra gives a praise and the people respond in kind by saying, amen, amen, which is really just a, a way of affirming this praise to God, saying, we agree that we are with you. Praise God for speaking. The people respond also by raising their hands. As one commentator explains, a show of your need for God, that almost like a child, our littlest ones, would raise their hands to be picked up, that we raise our hands to God and say, pick me up. Can you hold me? That they respond in that kind of way, and that not just raising their hands, but also bowing down, they show a posture of humility and wonder at the God who had brought them back. And I just want to take a brief aside and say, you can do those things here. I don't want you to be afraid to raise your hand, right? To praise God in a moment when you feel the Spirit moving in you in gratitude and response to that. Don't worry about the people around you, right? They're not God. They're not judging you. God ultimately is the one who is judging you, right? Be free to do these things, to bow down in our hearts because these are biblically faithful ways of bodily expressing worship and gratitude to God. I'm not saying you have to do these things. I'm saying I want you to be free to do these things if God's moving in your heart to do those things. It's okay. It's not like we have to get there, but it is okay. Side note over. Uh, Ezra, who was leading an earlier effort to rebuild the temple of God, reads and reads and reads sections, and it seems probably pauses, and then the Levites, the temple servants, were actually dispersed amongst the people. This is a big group, and they're helping explain what Ezra has just said. They're giving context to the reading of the word for people who maybe even didn't quite hear it as well, so they're rereading it again, or they're actually helping them explain so that they get the meaning, as the text says. They finally walk away with what this was all about. They explain it and unpack it for them, most likely, it seems, out of selections from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And if we think about those books, things they would have heard make sense with the way they reacted. Because those books talk about how God saved them from slavery, as we've already talked about, how he actually assembled them as a group of people just like this on a different mountain in front of Mount Sinai to reconstitute them there as his special people. They're standing together as a people hearing about how God gathered them one day centuries ago as a people after he had brought them out. It's a book and books that also talk about how despite that grace and beauty of what God did for them, that almost immediately they were a people that were grumbling and rebelling and not believing God and being stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted and questioning day in and day out. That despite having been slaves and freed from that, they were hearing about how the people were grumbling time and again. There are books that talked about the land that God was giving them to be his light to the world, a special place where people could really see what it's like to be near God and thinking inevitably about how that was the land that they lost in exile and that they are now just coming back to it after such a complete destruction. And books that really spoke about the promise of the consequence of exile if they walked away from God, but also God's promise to not leave them there to even if they were at the farthest stretches of the heavens, as chapter 1 of Nehemiah talks about, referencing God's very promises that he would bring them back. They're hearing these things for hours, and they break down. It says they wept. 
That's the Holy Spirit softening their hearts that they might hear and be sad, not be stiff-necked and angry and prideful that this is what has happened, but broken down, recognizing their part in it, recognizing their family's part in it, that it was their families before them who had sinned in such deep and painful, and if you read books like 2 Kings, ugly ways that you're saying, yeah, it is right for God to move them out, that they're hearing this and seeing their own part in it, seeing the ways that their hearts still aren't there, seeing the ways that they still grumble against God, not loving Him with all of their heart, their soul, their strength and mind, as Deuteronomy would call them to do, feeling like, that's not me. Maybe some of you all feel that way this morning. I certainly feel that way sometimes. They're seeing it in themselves, and they weep. Seems they're recognizing just how far off they still are from being this kind of people that would be a gathered people that would fulfill the things that God calls them to, that would be a gathered people that would invest in the things that God calls them to, and they're feeling the dissonance of that, and, and it might feel like rebuilding is useless. If this is what happened before, that God had to send them out because they didn't care ultimately about God in their hearts, isn't that just going to happen again? Didn't we just waste our time here? Isn't this for nothing? And they weep. But Ezra doesn't see it the way that they see it. He doesn't disagree that they're far off in their hearts. As we'll see more in chapters 9 and 10, there are some real ways that they have to come to grips with that and have to confess that and let that come out and see daylight. But Ezra recognizes something else. He recognizes that how far you are from God is not a cause for hopelessness. I want you to hear that particularly if you feel like someone that has walked away from God for a long time, or if you feel particularly distant from God in your hearts this morning. The recognizing how far you are from God is not a cause for hopelessness. It's actually, as Ezra shows them, a cause to celebrate to throw a party, right, to, to eat really good food, to drink really good wine. Amen? Okay, I know a couple of you are with me in here. <laughs> it's actually a cause to celebrate, not the distance, the recognition of the distance. The fact that you know that you are far off is an awakening from God to say you are actually not that far off. When you recognize how far you are, you are actually closer than you think. Because coming back to God is not, is not, first and foremost, about what we have or have not done. It's not about how bad you've been. It's not about how much time it's been. It's not about what you've done with that time. It's about God and how good He is, about His generosity towards you. It's about seeing Him and His love for us despite our sin. It's about seeing these two things together, not pretending one isn't there or that the other can't be there, but seeing the two together. That is what starts to bring us home. And we see that reality most clearly, Ezra suggests, through what he says is the joy of the Lord. That's what gives us to celebrate and not just mourn when we see our sin and the distance from God in our hearts. I'll be honest, as I was going through the text this week, that felt very confusing. I did not get how the joy of the Lord is somehow my comfort amidst these things, how that changes me, how His joy, not my joy, His joy somehow does something for me in my sin. It gives me hope in the midst of it. it, lets me celebrate in the midst of it. And so I started to dig through Scripture a little bit more and see what, where else does this come up? Where does the joy of God, God's joy, show up? And to be honest, it doesn't show up in very many places. So it started to narrow things down a little bit. It's actually a rare reference in Scripture, the joy of the Lord, God's own joy. It's not our joy about Him or not joy that comes because of what He does, but His own joy, His expressed sense of joy in the same way that you or I might feel joy. Perhaps the only other clear place that talks about that is in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 2, some of you might know the verse. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. 
It says Jesus' joy was enduring the cross. For the joy set before him, the expressed feeling of yes, joy was the cross. The greatest suffering that God ever takes into his own house in all of Scripture was a joy for him. It was not terror, was not sadness, was not bitterness and frustration, was joy. When Jesus suffered in our place for all of our sins, the innocent for the guilty, shamed for the shameful, struck down for the sinful, humbled for the prideful. When Jesus did all those things, naked on a cross in front of the whole city for everyone to see, having been beaten for hours, bloodied, dying, that moment for him was joy. Which means that the joy of the Lord, what that means is that God delights to bring his people back from sin, no matter what it costs him. That God is joyful and excited and passionate when he gets to bring people home, no matter what it costs him. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how deeply he has to dig in his pockets, no matter what he has to wipe out from his own personal comfort and experience to get to you, it is a joy for him to have you. Jesus tells several parables about this in the New Testament. He talks about a widow sweeping her house to find a lost coin, a shepherd going after one single sheep, and a father looking for two sons that had gone out in different ways and had never come home. The picture of God in Scripture is a God who is always looking for what is lost and so joyful when he finds it. Amen. Do you know that God takes joy in taking care of your sin? He's not looking at you like, hmm, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Mm. That's how we feel about God a lot of the time. It said it's just the opposite. It's you are trying to explain yourself and God just attacks you in the biggest hug you have ever experienced and just holds you until you start break down crying. That's how he approaches us in our sin. He takes joy in it. Just sit with that for a second, that God takes joy in dealing with your sin and mistakes. That's what makes us celebrate. That's what lets us stop weeping, like Ezra says, to stop and start celebrating instead. When we feel broken by sin, what helps us make that pivot the joy of the Lord and knowing that the joy of the Lord is to fix broken people. To die for them, even, rather than to let you die. That's what the cross shows us in the clearest terms. That's what Hebrews 12 explains to us. That's what Ezra is pointing out to, linking people back to the promises of God that he delights to sacrifice to bring his people out. That it's his joy to save you, not his joy to have you save yourself, but his joy to save you. God delights to bring sinners back, to be gracious over centuries, over generations, to families, to whole communities that walk away from him. God finds it a joy to do these things. I want you to know that that is the God of Christianity. If you've rejected another God, I get it, but that's not who this God is. The God of Christianity takes joy in welcoming you home, takes joy in chasing after you, takes joy in seeing you turn around after years of not speaking with him, years of being so furious with him, takes joy because he is right there waiting to wrap you up. If you want to reject the Christian God, that's the one that you're rejecting. Know that, and you may, and I pray that you wouldn't. But know who it is that we are saying that we believe if we're Christians. Don't be going around here living your Christian life like God hates you, like God doesn't want to hear from you, like you can't open your Bible again until you say you're sorry 15 different ways. God is right there. He is ready. See the grace of God in that. 
We're not rebuilt by burying ourselves in our own guilt. We are rebuilt by lifting our hands in need, saying, God, would you pick me up? That's how we get rebuilt, through the joy of the Lord, the joy that delights to bring sinners back. So very briefly, in light of this, I want to invite you in a more practical way to internalize these things. I want you to find a way to celebrate like legitimately celebrate in the way that you would for a birthday, for an an anniversary, for something that happens that you're really excited about. Find a way to celebrate. Uh, Laura has kindly helped us. After the service, we're going to have more of a celebratory feast than we usually do. There's some good things. Are we having in the fellowship hall? Okay, amen. Laura has given me the heads up. Come and find some things that are are rich, fatty foods, right? This is not a time to count carbs and calories. This is a time to celebrate, Right? I want to encourage you, find ways to celebrate that this is who God is, that this is the way that he sees you. Do something tangible. These people do things that were tangible. Do things that are tangible to say, I am celebrating that this is who God is. I want to invite you to do that, to have a culture of celebration amongst us, to raise your hands if you want to. Maybe if you only do that at home, to, to praise him in a bodily expressive way that lets the fullness of you out that doesn't cage you in. Don't hold back when you see his joy. And secondly, out of that joy, I want to encourage you to invest out of that celebration. Have an investment mindset here. If this is the God who has done these things for me, if God has this joy towards me, then what could I not do to chase after him? How has my life not changed in a way that just revolves around him if this is who he is? Wouldn't I want to invest in having other people brought in to that, not simply focusing on what we give up, but having a heart excited about what God might do if others got a hold of this. So I want to invite you, as this text invites us, to invest in people getting to know God's joy here and the work and worship of God going out from here and this being a place of celebration where we can throw parties, where we could throw more lavish parties than people might expect and invite people in. What would it look like if we had a reputation as a place of celebration and generosity? If church was just not known as what you shouldn't have done this week, but a place of celebration of who God is. Imagine what that could be like. Adopt, I want to encourage us, even just a 1% difference to lean in to that kind of investing here. Consider how we might rebuild in vitality, not a shell, but a cell, a living thing here, to materially see this place come alive in a new way and people more fully alive through it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, for you making us a part of your community, of being faithful over time. But we confess, God, there are so many ways that we just want out, that we run away, that we believe in a different you, that we don't believe that that's really who you are, that we can't trust that. Would you change our hearts, that we might trust in you, that we might know you in a new way, that we might have hope that this is really your joy to bring people home. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite all those that uh, brought children down to children's worship to bring them back now. We're going to have them in for communion. In the meantime, we will sing a song as we wait and do that. But I invite you to stand and let's sing in response to this God.